Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will examine the narrative which markets have been following and whether a change to that narrative might be on the horizon as conditions evolve, along with near-term investment considerations and how investors should consider positioning for longer-term trends. Today I am joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So, Jason, Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you had a nice weekend and looking forward to our conversation today. Good morning, Dan. It was a nice spring weekend in New York. I hope you had a good weekend. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, likewise. Weather has been great. It's been a nice change in pace as of late. So glad to hear you had a nice weekend. So I know on the podcast this morning, Jason, to begin the week, we want to spend some time talking about the latest UBS house view for the month of May, which, by the way, is now available up on UBS.com forward slash CIO for both our listeners and their clients to reference. But within the house view, in particular, the UBS house view monthly letter authored by Mark Hafley, our global chief investment officer. It cites how investors are perhaps beginning to consider whether the long-standing market narrative, which being lower for longer, will remain intact or perhaps shift. So, Jason, maybe as a good starting point, can you remind our listeners, our clients, of what this lower for longer narrative consists of, as well as offer some clarity on the factors at play that have prompted this investor curiosity as of late? Sure. So, lower for longer is kind of shorthand for low growth low inflation and low interest rates, which has been really kind of the defining macroeconomic characteristics of the past decade prior to the pandemic and really from the post-financial crisis era. Uh, it is, you know, when we define that, I mean, kind of growth of around you know, 2% or even a bit less on average for GDP growth in the U.S. Inflation that struggled to, to even reach sort of 2% for any sustained period of time. And interest rates, as we've seen, you know, over the past, well, you know, number of years, number of decades, but you know, very low interest rates that have kind of continued to decline, uh, both on the policy side, meaning what the Fed funds rate is, but also the, you know, say the ten-year Treasury as a, as a proxy for interest rates in the market. So all those were were kind of lower, and the perception was that this would, you know, they would stay low, really for the foreseeable future, and that was the case going into the pandemic. But even coming out, I think there's still some thought that that would be the case. What sort of change and why now there's some discussion about a potential narrative shift or macro regime change is we're seeing a you know, fundamental change in policy in response to the pandemic as opposed to what happened after the, the financial crisis. Um, and these are, I think, really the keys as to why, you know, there could be a sort of a, a market change. There are many other structural factors which are probably not as important near term, but I think it's, so it's really about policy story. Uh, and one is that we're seeing both monetary and fiscal policy act very aggressively to deal with the pandemic. Uh, you know, the amount so far spent on on the fiscal side, uh, cumulatively, once all the money is spent from the various packages, will total somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 trillion, which is, you know, out of a $20 trillion economy, you know, that takes you up to close to, you know, to 30% of the total expenditures of, of fiscal spending throughout the GDP. That's far larger than what happened after the, you know, the great financial crisis back in 2008, 2009, and 10. Uh, and it looks like there could even potentially be more uh, if we get an infrastructure package passed late this year. At the same time, the Fed has been very accommodative for a number of years, but they seem to be even more adamant in terms of focused on letting inflation run a little bit hotter, uh, you know, kind of more than, than sort of before, where they would be a little bit concerned about inflation overshooting the 2% target. Now they're willing to let inflation go above 2% for an extended period of time. Uh, they're very much focused on the strength of the labor market being a very broad-based recovery, uh, a term they use is sort of maximum employment, 
Um, so all this suggests a very accommodative monetary policy, which also supports the fiscal policy. So this is a fundamental sort of mindset shift as well as actual policy change today versus it would have been, you know, 10 years ago. I think that the, the potentials of this could actually lift, you know, growth uh, above 2% for a sustainable period of time. It could also have inflation get above 2% for a sustainable period of time. Not significantly so, but definitely a little bit more above 2% than below. And then sort of by extension, this could lead to rates you know, rising to levels that they haven't been in a number of years. So this is kind of what's potentially on, on the table in terms of a market change after what's really been the case for the past decade. So, Jason, that was very helpful now that we have a better understanding of this lower for a longer narrative, as well as some factors at play that have been prompting this curiosity as to whether or not this narrative will remain intact. If such a narrative shift or a macro regime change, as you put it, were to occur, Jason, what do you see as the possible alternative scenarios? And in terms of timing, when might we expect this shift to take place? Well, I think we can distill it down into three you know, most plausible scenarios. And one is just a continuation of this lower for longer theme, meaning that once we get through an acceleration of growth and inflation this year, that will continue a little bit into next year, we go back to what it was for you know, kind of the pre-pandemic period of this kind of lower for longer environment. Another scenario, uh, you know, which in, in the uh, in the letter from last week we referred to as sort of roaring 20s, you know, in, you know, kind of analogy to you know, the 1920 eras, uh, as we move forward in this decade, where well, we can actually see something that's more sustainably higher in terms of growth, modestly higher inflation, and that leads to kind of higher rates. Like we get sort of a, a real sort of upward lifting, sort of breaking higher from this lower for longer regime. Uh, so that would be the second scenario. And the third one is uh, what we call sort of stagnation light or stagflation light, which we people know or should be familiar with the term stagflation. It characterized in the 1970s. If you sort of have stagnant growth but higher inflation, stagflation light implies to something like that, but not something the magnitude of what we had in the 1970s, which is that after we see a strong growth acceleration this year, you know, it sort of fades, growth kind of goes back to that long-term low level, but inflation continues to rise because the Fed is allowing, uh, you know, policy or the economy to run hot. We have a lot of fiscal policy that is more inflationary than growth enhancing, and ultimately this leads the Fed to potentially, you know, sort of tighten rates. Uh, so those are the three kind of, you know, plausible scenarios. In terms of timing, you know, these things sort of take, you know, at least a, you know, a few years to sort of play out, in some cases even longer, in part because if we're talking about a real structural change in the economy, we often don't really know that when it's happening in real time because there's a lot of other factors sort of, you know, going on. We don't know if this is a temporary cyclical phenomenon or if it's a real structural change. So I think they, it'll be at least a sort of a year before we get real kind of clarity on which of these different paths because each of the scenarios right now is plausible. We know that growth is high because of, you know, short-term stimulus measures coming out of the pandemic, of just the economy reopening up, some of that will fade. It could take at least a year before that really kind of plays through. So we won't know until next year whether is growth really going to stay you know, sustainably higher, will inflation moderate back to that 2% or even less number, or will it actually stay elevated? You know, the, the effects will become kind of clearer you know, next year. So I think the, the timing is, you know, one to two years before we have clarity. In terms of how it plays out, it's a multi-year your process. We could be talking about really the dynamic and, and key narrative for the next, you know, five to ten years, not just the one next one to two years. Okay, that that's helpful context in terms of timing. So this is not necessarily something that might occur tomorrow. I do have a follow up. Maybe we can dive a bit deeper, Jason, in terms of the market and investment implications of these scenarios. And of the three scenarios, Jason, that you've outlined for us just now, is there one in particular that you believe is most likely to materialize, or perhaps even a combination? 
combination of the three? Well, I think if you know the default assumption would be the lower for longer will continue. That you know, in order to sort of break out of this environment for the past decade, we need sustained policy that can one really sort of move the needle fundamentally in terms of growth and inflation, as well as other sort of structural factors that have been sort of headwinds, uh, you know, for for rising higher, or or you could say tailwinds for keeping inflation very low, for example, will those reverse? So, you know, so one example is you know, globalization. This has been viewed as a factor that's been sort of disinflationary because, you know, companies have been able to relocate production to the cheapest possible area. That's kept inflation lower, all else equal. If that starts to reverse for a variety of reasons, uh, that could go from being a, a tailwind to lower inflation to maybe a tailwind for higher inflation. But that's a very slow kind of gradual process that doesn't happen over a year, two years, it could happen over multiple years. And until we kind of see clear evidence of those trends, and there's multiple trends that were sort of you know, leading to say low inflation until they reverse, um, you know, it's saying the default should be you know lower for longer. The difference though between now and say the past you know five years you know, prior to the pandemic is that there actually is real clear scope for changing you know that that dynamic that we really could break out into some that is a roaring twenty scenario uh, that could last for a number of years or could even sort of you know go that way for for a short period of time, but ultimately kind of goes back into more of a stagflation light scenario. So if we think of you know the base case is lower for longer, the upside would be you know, the, the roaring 20s and a downside scenario that looks that way, but ultimately we get a shorter cycle because we get inflation and the Fed has to raise rates. Those sort of tails on either end have higher probabilities today than it did before. So if we think of, um, you know, lower for longer is the most likely, but it's actually pretty good combined probability that those other two scenarios play out in a way that wasn't the case the past decade, which if we bring it back to investing in like what's, what the market and what are the investment implications, if we go back to sort of this lower for longer regime, you know, the playbook that worked for much of the past decade should work in this environment, which means, you know, secular growth stocks that did really well could continue to be kind of, you know, the market favorites and they're likely to outperform because investors are going to be looking for growth where they can find it if the economy overall isn't going quickly. It could keep interest rates very low. So things that like, you know, longer duration bonds that have, you know, where yields have risen, um, you know, rate, rates don't rise much anymore. Well, now you get a little bit more return from those securities. Uh, and if, of course, if there's any sort of real, real risk off environment, uh, and we get a sort of recession scenario, those rates could fall to give you some you know, protection. Uh, it also might mean that you need to look for, you know, some more illiquid markets, private markets to get some additional returns. In a roaring 20 scenario, uh, it's more of a sustained period of elevated growth, rising inflation, you know, potentially rising rates. Those th- things that have actually done well in the past six months. Uh, such as value stocks, you know, financials, energy, they could continue to do well. Um, we think of if interest rates rise, you probably don't want to have the longer duration exposure, so maybe shorter duration fixing master classes, also lower rate of credit that continue to do well in a very strong, you know, macro environment. Um, the dollar should weaken in this scenario, all is equal, versus being supported in the lower for longer scenario. And then in the stagflation scenario, it's sort of the, you know, the worst you know, scenario, at least for, for most conventional asset classes, because it means lower growth, but higher inflation and ultimately higher interest rates, that's going to be bad for, for stocks and for bonds. So you'd want to have asset classes that would maybe give you some protection in that scenario, such as, you know, chips, uh, potentially gold, you know, commodities. Given that all the three of these scenarios are on the table as possibilities, we think about then, you know, you know how to maybe position for it. It's almost you don't want to have some exposure to uh, asset classes that, that could do well in all of them, because even though lower for longer might be the baseline scenario, we want to at least longer term be protected against the fact that 
you know, a lot of uncertainty which ones they could be. So having some exposure to each of these scenarios is, is a good sort of portfolio construction approach right now. That's very helpful guidance, Jason. So on a more near-term basis, again, in consideration of the fact, as you've shared with us, that some of these uh, narratives, these potential shifts, they will take some time to occur. So we need to be mindful of what's ahead of us on the near term. What are some considerations that investors need to be mindful of when considering allocation? And that can account for economic conditions, of course, inflation a policy direction on the fiscal and monetary side, as well as year-to-day performance of risk assets, which have been quite favorable. Well, let's kind of break this up into maybe four kind of categories. One is fundamentals, the second is policy, third is the pandemic itself, and then the fourth would be sort of this investor sentiment, you know, know, positioning after the performance we've seen this year. So I think on fundamentals, we know the data is going to be very strong in terms of U.S. growth going forward. It's already, we've seen some very strong numbers recently. Uh, the concern that investors have right now in the marketplace is not so much that the data won't be good, but a lot of the good news is priced in, and that the acceleration in this for the U.S. economy is going to sort of peak out this quarter, maybe in the next month or two, as further restrictions are eased, as the benefits of stimulus really kind of maximize their their, their impact. Um, so growth would peak, and then it starts to moderate from a very very elevated level. But I think the invest you know the markets are concerned, investors are concerned that once we get past that peak. You know, the best of the, you know, this new market performance is already pointed out. I think that's a concern, but it's, it's a little bit overstated because, you know, growth should be very strong for a period of time. Uh, the rest of the world is about, you know, three months behind the U.S. in terms of reopening, getting through the pandemic. So the, the global peak should not happen until the third quarter. Um, but that's something that I think in terms of fundamentals that were, you know, definitely the focus related to that is inflation. We know that inflation data is going to rise. Um, in the second quarter, just from a year-over-year effect, as prices dropped in the second quarter of last year, it tends to low bar. So this year, we, you know, we're going to clear easily. That means higher inflation readings coming up in the next couple of months. This is likely to be transitory, and there's certainly a lot of anecdotes of you know input costs rising, supply pro- supply prices rising. But a lot of this ultimately should be temporary. I mean, you know, the next you know six months, they should kind of you know phase out. But that's you know fundamentally that that's kind of what we're thinking. But that's like a risk that we could be wrong on. Um, but it's still ultimately kind of favorable for, you know, a positive near-term outlook. On the policy side, uh, this week, I think, you know, a couple of key things to watch for is the FOMC meeting on Wednesday. It's unlikely they're going to change the policy in any significant way, um, but it's something to kind of watch for to make sure they continue to be a very sort of dovish in their approach, waiting very a long time before they'd want to take any sort of action. And then on Wednesday night, President Biden is going to give a, a speech to, to joint speech to Congress. Uh, and he's expected to outline his American Families Plan, so the next stage of its infrastructure proposal focus more on individuals and families. Also talk about some of the tax increases that were highlighted last week. So, you know, that will give us more color in terms of what we can actually really expect in terms of a total fiscal package coming from the administration. Uh, a third kind of thing to watch for is the pandemic itself. Uh, we're seeing now, you know, you know, the, the case count in the U.S., if we take a seven-day average, is trying to tick down. Uh, if we look at the evidence from Israel and also the U.K. where they vaccinated at a faster rate earlier, we saw that once a certain percentage of the population, around about 50%, you know, were vaccinated at least with one shot. We started to see a material decline in a number of cases. The U.S. should get there in about three weeks. And so that's a sign where we could start to see a material decline in the, in the pandemic, um, which would be a positive for the market. I think that's, a, you know, getting that, that further under control. And then just in terms of the sentiment investor positioning, um, you know, it's been a very strong year. It means I think that the sentiment for investors is very positive right now, but I wouldn't say it's euphoric. Uh, and investors are, I think, you know, still looking to be invested. 
Uh, I think there's very much a sort of buy the dip mentality that anytime we get a bit of a pullback, uh, investors are going to be looking to kind of, you know, you know, reallocate money into the markets, get in. Because in terms of downside risks, you know, everything I just sort of said, it sounds you know, quite positive in terms of fundamental policy of the pandemic. Um, so, I think, you know, given that, the, the mentality is to buy the dip for the time being. Jason, given that checklist of considerations spanning the buckets that you've outlined for us, what is your current take on allocation in light of the near-term outlook that you've shared with us, as well as a potential narrative shift? Uh, well, so in terms of the broad allocation, it's, you know, definitely to stay invested and perhaps looking to, to put uh, additional money to work in the equity markets. Um, you know, returns going forward probably won't match the pace they have, you know, over the past year, six months, even year to date with the S&P up 11%. Uh, it might be difficult for the market to, to reach that level for the rest of the year. So returns are likely to be lower. But if you look at the alternatives of what you're going to get in, in bonds and credit where yields and spreads are very tight and, and low, you know, kind of by default, equities look like they're, they're you know, the only shop you know, that you want to you know, go into the, in terms of, you know, buying right now. I think that provides some, some opportunities. What we like continues to be in sort of in terms of incremental dollar perspective is in the value space, you know, like from financials for energy, looking uh, still within sort of small and mid cap equities, uh, emerging markets um, as well. You know, things like commodities, you know, on the recovery plan, on the recovery, we've seen a strong rally from from oil, from some base metals. We think those will continue to do well. Uh, so there's been a bit of moderation in some of those asset class performances in the past month. But given the macro environment, we think that next leg is going to kind of kick in to go higher. So still some opportunities there. And I mentioned emerging markets, but I think it's important for U.S. investors to think global. Uh, you know, the, we've done well for the past three months in terms of vaccinations and opening up. Europe hasn't, but I think now they're starting to catch up and we should see kind of a, a, a recovery there. Same thing in, in parts of the emerging markets, at least from an economic perspective benefiting from the U.S., from Europe, other developed markets opening up, the global economy doing well, we should, we should see you know, good strength in emerging market equities. Um, and just one final thing, you know, you're talking about those different longer-term scenarios. Two of them, uh, certainly stagflation light and growing 20s favor things like value commodities growth for the past decade. So part of what we like cyclically also plays into benefiting and being given you position for those two other scenarios if they play out. So I know a lot of investors still like growth stocks still kind of want to have a, a portfolio tilted to that. But both cyclically and potentially secularly over multiple years, these other areas could do well. So making sure you're allocated to them, almost even as a hedge in case you know it is a regime change, is an important thing to think about as you uh, look at your portfolio overall right now and how you want to be positioned for the next both six months, but also the next perhaps two or three years. Well, Jason, time will, of course, tell how and when a narrative shift might play out, though it's very helpful to have a better understanding now with the factors that are prompting the thought of a potential narrative shift, what exactly might occur and how to position for a shift accordingly. So very helpful conversation this morning, Jason, to begin the week. Wish you a nice week ahead and look forward to catching back up with you again on the podcast soon. All right. Thank you, Dan. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. And again, today we have been joined by Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including, of course, the publication that Jason and I have been citing during our conversation today, that being the UBS Houseview Publication 
publication suite for the month of May, including the UBS Houseview monthly letter titled Changing the Narrative. So for clients of UBS, you can of course contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of the UBS Houseview publication suite directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.